changes. What's up, Wastelanders? Boys and girls, prepare to be astounded, bedazzled, and otherwise stupefied. <laughs> you talk a lot. Sound funny when you talk like a stupid human. <laughs> I am online once again. Tremble world before my electric heating coil of doom. <laughs> What's up, Wastelanders? Hello and welcome to Tapes from the Wastes, a Fallout fan podcast bringing you lore readings, gameplay talk, news, discussions and more, all revolving around the world of Fallout. I'm KDB, one of your hosts, and uh, apologies that this episode came a little bit later than I promised. Uh, I don't like to make excuses, but I kind of shot myself in the foot a bit because I sent a tweet out that it was going to come out last weekend and then within like a day of that tweet I developed a horrendous cold which I'm sure you can still hear a little bit now and I was just kind of in no shape to record anything so I thought I'll hold off until it passes but the week's gone on and I probably could have held off longer but it was driving me mad so I thought I'll I'll just get on with it and I'll just record so apologies for my stuffiness Um, this is the kind of thing that comes with the territory of having a young kid which is what I do and they are known to be uh, super spreaders of colds and bugs and things like that so yes I apologize for any sniffling I know I will try to edit out any any really bad uh, (laughs) sniffs Anyway, so yes, uh, this episode, this episode is, uh, it's going to be another Lore Dive episode and I'll be handing over to Eric for that in a bit and the lore is going to be on one of the biggest aspects of the Fallout universe, the Brotherhood of Steel. Now, of course, the Brotherhood is obviously a huge part of Fallout and it's going to be, it's not going to be something we can cover in just one episode, so we will definitely be doing a few Brotherhood of Steel episodes. We've kind of talked about them a bit in the past on the uh, Steel Dawn and Steel Rain uh, DLCs for Fallout 76. So it feels like we've spoken about them lots already, but there's just so much to cover. And um, yeah, we're going to be doing that through the course of the podcast's life. And uh, as I say, I'm going to hand over to my co-host Eric, who will be taking you through a kind of introduction to the Brotherhood of Steel. So we're going to look at their beginnings in this episode. But before we get to the lore section, uh, let's talk a little bit about some gameplay uh, and a little bit of news. We actually have a couple of big bits of Fallout news. Uh, So first up uh, in Fallout news is that Fallout 76 now has a roadmap for the rest of 2022 which is obviously very exciting to see now we are late february so it would have been nice to see this sooner but hey you know it's it's better than nothing um i've i have taken a look at it but what i'm going to do is i'm just going to open it here and just go through it um so what do we have fallout 2022 roadmap spring is invaders from beyond save appalachia from otherworldly all-encompassing invasion Uh, including a public event takeovers, new random encounters, and new seasonal public event, and more. So, it's a little bit vague, but it sounds like it might be like, you know, like um, mole miners and stuff like that. I I presume it's going to be like that, but it's based around the alien invaders, uh, which I've been looking forward to for a while. Um, I thought it was going to be a bit more quest-based, but um, that's fine. It's fine. I'm keen to see more. Uh, so yeah, new public events, Fallout Worlds update, and Season 8, A Better Life Underground. Ah, that's So that's going to be the theme for the next scoreboard. Uh, and then we have for summer, we have Test Your Metal, which is put your armour, weapons, and grit to the test in multiple new heart-pounding public events. And there's like a uh, picture uh, of a sentry bot. So again, it's a little bit vague, but... There's stuff coming, which I'm all for. Um, And then moving into full, we have Expeditions, The Pit, finally. So this will be arriving... This will be a year, maybe longer than a year after it was first announced. Um, 
I think, I'd have to double check the date, I think it was E3 last year that it was announced, uh, venture beyond the boundaries of Appalach Appalachia on missions to uh, the lethal location known only as the Pit. So this is something that obviously everybody's been excited for for a while because it's going to be new location. Um, and yeah, but it's, it's taken a while to get here. I'm excited that it's on the way. Um, so yeah, introducing missions, new rewards, and then obviously that'll be season 10 by that point. And then finally on here we have Winter Nuka World on Tour. So this looks very interesting. Now I don't know if this is the first time we've heard about this. Uh, when it comes to these sort of future updates with Fallout, I'm, I'm not the best person to be fully up to date on it. I'll sort of talk about that more in a minute. Um, but I think it's the first time I've heard about it. I don't remember other podcasters speaking about it, but m my memory can be terrible. Uh, so, Nuka World on Tour, the, the fizziest show on Earth has kicked uh, the irradiated dust off the tyres and hit the road. Next stop, Appalachia. So, yeah, basically, so that sounds like region boss public event, new public events in season 11. So, yeah, that sounds like lots of um, iconography, maybe enemies and things and stuff from Nuka World in Fallout 4 is going to be coming to 76, which is good because I love Nuka World and we literally just did... An episode on Nuka Cola, and we talked about Nuka World a lot, and my thoughts on Nuka World. And now we've got this coming. Okay, okay, so it's winter next year. Now winter could be November, December. It could be January next year. But but that's the gist of it. That's that's what we got. This big, nice image which you can find sort of on the Fallout 76 socials and on their website. And stuff is happening. Stuff is coming, and I. This is good to see because I, I knew there was a couple of things coming, but this is more than what I've thought was coming. And I've been somebody that's kind of felt like Fallout was not, not dying. Fallout 76 was not dying, but yeah, my phrase I used before was being handed off to the players with Fallout Worlds. So, but yeah, there's potentially lots of stuff here. It is kind of vague, but yeah, there's a clear statement that, you know... Uh, Here's the roadmap. This is a year's worth of planning we've got. What it all turns out to be remains to be seen. Um, and yeah, as I kind of said, so regular listeners to the podcast will know that I'm not like a Fallout expert. That's not what this podcast is about. And I I started it so I could just kind of make sense of some of the lore and such, which had previously gone over my head when, when playing the game. Um, <clears throat> so... Yeah, it may shock you to hear that I, I play many games outside of Fallout, which, yeah, crazy, right? Um, and so the reason I say this is because when I see things like this, the roadmap, for me, my reaction is immensely positive. Like, I feel like this is good, there's going to be stuff to do, and it gives me a reason to play. Uh, but I will note that I have seen uh, some people who I would say are much more... Uh, certainly more hardcore players than me, do maybe seem a little bit disappointed in the roadmap. Um, there's been no mention of previously promised things like four-star legendary weapons or pets, which I know is a couple of things that people were excited about, and they're not on this roadmap at all. And neither of those are things that I'm really too bothered about. It's I'm sort of more interested in, in story stuff. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that there's, there's definitely been a mixed reaction to this roadmap. Um, my reaction is positively optimistic, um, but it is it does look kind of vague. Um, but the image is nice. <laughs> Time has gone into the image, which is good. Which is f you know they could have just put a tweet out with nothing, you know, with just text, but they didn't. We've got this key art here, this nice imagery. It's considered and it's been thought about. So. Yeah, it hints to me that there is lots of stuff happening still in Fallout 76, and I'm pleasantly surprised to see that. Um, but yeah, go check it out on the website if you want to see it for yourself. Um, we have... what are we doing? So yeah, so more news. We do have more news still. So next up in Fallout news is... Uh, so this this is another thing I'm really excited. This is already a super positive episode, which is good. So... Um, the Amazon-produced Fallout TV show, we have more news from that. Uh, so this was announced that Walton Goggins has been cast as the lead. And I'm just going to read the article here, which is a... This is another Deadline exclusive. I think they 
previously had the exclusive on the showrunner announcement as well. So, yeah, Deadline, uh, they're doing well on the old Fallout scoops here, which is cool. Uh, but yeah, so here we go. Uh, this was posted last week. Uh, Walton Goggins is set set uh, is set as a lead in Fallout uh, Prime Video's series adaptation of the best-selling game franchise, which comes from Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy's Kilter Films, with Nolan set to direct the premiere. Uh, Jonathan Nolan, obviously a huge name there. <coughs> Excuse me. The world of Fallout is one where the future envisioned by Americans in the late 1940s explodes upon itself through a nuclear war in 2077. The magic of the Fallout world is the harshness of the wastelands set against the previous generation's utopian idea of a better world through nuclear energy. Details about Goggins' character are not revealed, but he is believed to be playing a ghoul. Now, that is incredibly exciting <laughs> and perfect casting uh, for reasons I'll get into. Uh, in Fallout, ghouls are mutated humans who experienced uh, experience prolonged who experienced prolonged radiation exposure amid the Great War. And Fallout, the TV series, is from Amazon Studios and Kilter Films uh, in association with Bethesda Game Studios and Bethesda Softworks. Uh, with executive producers Nolan, Joy, and Athena Wickman for Kilter Films, Todd Howard for Bethesda, so Todd is involved, uh, and James Altman for Bethesda Softworks. Geneva Robertson Drawet. Oh, sorry, I've completely butchered that name. <laughs> Geneva Robertson Direct and Graham Wagner serve as showrunners on the series, which is slated to begin production in 2022. Uh, the Fallout franchise has posted record sales and received dozens of Game of the Year awards. Yes, yes, yes. A Fallout Shelter has been downloaded more than 170 million times. That's cool. But yes, Justified Alum Goggin, Justified Alum Goggins is recurring on the HBO show The Righteous Gemstones, which is currently airing its third season. He's also part of the cast of Apple TV, Apple TV's limited series The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray, starring Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, he recently appeared and uh, he recently wrapped the movie Dreamin' Wild, directed by Bill Folad. Uh, Bill Polad, sorry, I'm I'm destroying these names here. Terrible research by me, I do apologise. And is currently filming limited series George and Tammy for Spectrum opposite Michael Shannon and Jessica Chastain's. Uh, Goggins is wrapped by ICM Partners. Uh, cool, and it finishes there. So yeah, that is um when I saw this headline. I, yeah, I popped for this because uh, I am a big Walton Goggins fan. Now, I haven't seen everything that he's done, but everything that I've seen him in, he just gives, he basically steals the show. Like, he delivers, like, a stellar performance, and he he sort of has, I think, a bit of a reputation. Uh, he's, he's very much a character actor, which makes him perfect for playing uh, a character in Fallout, and, and in particular a ghoul. I mean, it just makes absolutely perfect sense. And so, and with the tone of Fallout as well, which is kind of like dark humour, uh, yeah, again it all adds to the perfection to me. So this is this is seriously good casting, uh, and for something that when it was first announced the show was like, okay, you know video game to screen adaptations how is this going to go? So far positive like the the caliber of production crew and now the cast is is very high and if amazon if i'm to know amazon they're going to be throwing money at this like they seem to do with a lot of their shows and hbo are producing a last of us tv show as well and i would imagine that amazon see this as kind of their competitor to that maybe in a way I mean, it's maybe it's not competition, you know, it's it's great to have lots of everything, but, you know, they are competing services, and thematically, the shows are kind of similar, you know, post-apocalyptic style deal and all this kind of stuff, so, yeah, I'm really interested, but I'm I'm so excited to see that Goggins has been cast, and, and I, I hope that sticks, you know, sometimes casting announcements get made, and then uh, it changes, and people leave, and stuff like that, so... But yeah, so far so good. Um, I'm very, very excited for this this Fallout Fallout TV show. Um, that's it. That's that's the main news, really. Uh, there is also uh, I was looking. There was a recent um, couple of weeks ago was the um, uh, what's it called the Inside the Vault update uh, for 76 on the Fallout website as well, uh, which had some stuff on there. And I do I think I do have it here. Let me just have a quick look. 
uh, yeah, they were just basically they had a video uh, from the devs, um, Invaders from Beyond Update, and they did uh, some developer gameplay, which I hadn't actually watched yet. Um, but it was just cool to see again that there was more stuff coming out. You know, these Inside the Vaults are really, really good, and uh, yeah, they. <coughs> excuse me. The fact that they come so uh, fairly regularly, it's not every week, it seems to be every couple of weeks that one comes out. Um, or it might be every week, no, I don't think it's every week. Uh, but yeah, th they keep players informed and uh, yeah, I just want to say thanks to uh, the folks at Fallout and Bethesda for continuing to do that because I know there's some live service games out there that are receiving a lot of criticism for not being very transparent and communicative uh, or very very good at communication with their player base so it's good to see that fallout uh is so yeah well done there but yeah go to the website if you'd like to read that inside the vault update for yourselves right so that's the news that's the main news in the world of fallout at the moment and before we get to the law section i just wanted to quickly touch on my own gameplay uh, since the last episode um, I have played 76 very rarely, <laughs> and uh, uh, ironically, I've actually been revisiting Fallout 4 uh, to wrap up a few loose ends that I kind of never got around to, and just try to unlock some of those last few achievements. So yeah, I I'm still in the world of Fallout, I've just not been playing 76, I've been playing Fallout 4. And um, from the uh, original set of achievements, I... So this is before the DLC. I was only ever missing two. And one was Benevolent Leader, which is where you need to reach 100% happiness in a camp. And the other was Prince Not Dead, which is collect 20 magazines. Now, the 20 magazines one has to be bugged because I have absolutely done this achievement before and it's just never popped. And I'm not sure what's going on here. And I have uninstalled and reinstalled the game and yeah. It just it just does not seem to work. The benevolent benevolent leader one that's one I've just never managed to do, and uh, I recently got some advice from uh, my buddy Steve from First Aid Spray. Um, First Aid Spray is the Resident Evil content community uh, that I'm also a part of, um, and uh, Steve was talking about the fact that he had uh, he'd got all the achievements and. And I'm, so I quizzed him about the Benevolent Leader one, as that's something I've always been trying to get. And so he gave me some tips, and now I'm actually finally working towards that to try and finally unlock it, which will be good all these years later. What is it, five, five, six years later now? But yeah, um, of the DLC, I'd previously completed all of it except for the uh, Automatron quest line, which I finally wrapped up last week. Um, I'd, I'd seen clips and read the story in the past, so I was not completely oblivious as to what happens in the quest line. But um, I'd, uh, yeah, I just never experienced it for myself, so that was really fun and, and genuinely fun, actually. And luckily, I had a Gauss rifle which just like ripped through basically all of the robots fairly easily because um, the robots can be, a, especially high-level robots, they can be a pain in the ass and uh, yeah my gauss rifle just happened to have a lot of ammo and so yeah it it i think i'd already when i loaded up the game i'd started i was somewhere where i'd started the quest line so i was already kind of being attacked and, and surrounded and luckily yeah that weapon saved my ass so uh, there was a lot of robots in that last quest and uh, in particular so yeah thanks to my trusty gauss rifle there um, and I got those achievements. Uh, I can't seem to figure out how to get the... Uh, it's build build one of every mod type for a robot, I think. So, because I thought I did. I sort of tried it in the crafting, in the, you know, the robot builder, whatever it's called. So I, I kind of need to do some research there and look up and see what's involved. Um, Another achievement which I think is also bugged is the kill 30 creatures on Far Harbour because Far Harbour is another DLC. I've finished Far Harbour at least twice um, and, I've tr I and I came on again recently and I just tried killing 30 enemies and still the achievement didn't pop and for anyone listening I do not have mods, uh, mods enabled. Now um, I have save files that have mods enabled uh, but certainly... 
I didn't start using them until well after like the first time, at least the first time I'd completed Far Harbor. Um, so yeah, I just make sure I have a save file loaded up that doesn't have the mods on, and it's still the, the achievement isn't popping. So that's kind of frustrating, and I'm not really sure how to fix this. If anyone has any ideas, please um, yeah let me know. Um, but yeah, it's I love revisiting Fallout 4 because it it's kind of still feels like there's plenty for me to do. A bit like Skyrim, uh, like I Fallout 4, I have. I have over 200. I reckon I need to check. I must be approaching 300 hours, which for me is a lot. That that's a lot of time for me. I know to some people that's peanuts. That's that's rookie numbers. For me, that is a lot of time in a single game. <laughs> but uh, each time I go back to Fallout, I discover something else, and I'm just gonna, you know, keep working on those final final achievements and exploring parts I haven't explored. And yeah, hopefully one day. Um, 100% it completely you know I've, I've got the bulk of them there's just just a few more to go so yeah that's the the bulk of my gameplay really um, I've been kind of doing a preamble here for like 20 minutes so I think it's about time I wrap this up and we get to the main chunk of the episode which as mentioned is a lore dive into the Brotherhood of Steel uh, in particular the origins of the Brotherhood of Steel and uh, so without further ado, I'll hand over to my co-host Eric, a.k.a. Sulior, and I'll be back at the end, uh, but please enjoy this episode, and ad victorium. In the 1950s, we dreamed of a better world. Clean, fusion-powered cars, robots that walk the dog, peaceful existence thanks to the wonders of science. We were close to achieving that dream when war broke out. Nuclear weapons were used without restraint. It was the nightmare everyone feared. It was the Great War. Millions died during the first attacks. A few people fled to underground vaults, but many more on the surface fell victim to the burning, poisonous air. For those who endured, there was only the wasteland. No order, no law, only survival. Radiation and new viruses changed the face of life on Earth forever. Out of nowhere, an army of giants called mutants appeared. They slaughtered many people and altered many more to add to their numbers. The Brotherhood of Steel self-appointed knights of the wasteland arose to drive off the mutants. They gave humanity peace and a glimmer of hope. But even now, the Brotherhood remains small in number, limited in power. And the dangers of the wasteland only seem to grow with each day that passes. Thank you very much Kelsey so yes let's talk about the Brotherhood of Steel and specifically their early days so the Brotherhood of Steel is such a monumental topic that we could spend several episodes talking about them and we will <laughs> we will very much so um, not just the fact that their history is so long but there are different branches of the brotherhood of steel there's you know different locations kind of take their on take on their own um identity if you will so yes there's a quote here i'm uh, getting my information from the fallout wiki and uh, fandom so the brotherhood of steel is commonly abbreviated to bos it is a post-war paramilitary organization devoted to the preservation of technology and knowledge with chapters operating across the ruins of America. And there's a quote here from somebody named Vree. It says, the only salvation this tortured planet and its people have, without us, humanity is sure to perish. So yes, that kind of shows you what the Brotherhood of Steel think of themselves. Founded by a United States Army security team stationed at Mariposa Military Base before the Great War, 
So, I mean, you do kind of get the sense of a military organization whenever you encounter the Brotherhood of Steel. They're very deliberate, I guess is the right word, in their actions, at least for the most part here. Uh, not to say that there isn't some dissension among the ranks, but you do get the sense that this is a very well-oiled machine when it comes to dealing with the Brotherhood of Steel. So the goals of the Brotherhood are vary from chapter, chapter to chapter. Like I said, each chapter of the Brotherhood kind of has its own identity, but for the most part, they all have a common goal. It says here that, <clears throat> excuse me, though small, the Brotherhood has been an influential group in the history of the Wasteland, first as a survivalist group, then as a research and development house, then finally as an enemy of the New California Republic, fighting a war against the New California Republic on the West Coast. And their motto is, of course, Ad Victorium. Who are the Brotherhood of Steel? Our order seeks to understand the nature of technology its power, its meaning to us as humans. And we fight to secure that power from those who would abuse it. In 2076, the NBC division of West Tech achieved breakthrough results in the Pan-Immunity Variant Project. The United States Defense Department, fearing the international espionage, moved a military team under the command of Colonel Robert Spindell and Captain Roger Maxson onto the site to secure and oversee the project, now dubbed the FEV project. And I'm sure by now everybody knows what the FEV project deals with. On January 7th, 2077, all FEV research was moved into the newly constructed Mariposa military base to commence testing of the virus on human subjects. The security team was transferred to the newly constructed base as well to provide protection for the research going on within the facility. Of course, they were not informed of the nature of the research. So they're doing experiments with the FEV, or at least people are, and they're overseeing the project, but they don't know, I guess it was a need to know basis on who knows what the nature of the research is. The situation unraveled shortly before October 10th, 2077, so we're getting close to bomb drop day here. The soldiers stationed at Mariposa discovered the fact that the scientists under their care were performing experiments with the FEV virus on military prisoners. So they were using prisoners of war to conduct their experiments on. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty messed up. This prompted a nervous breakdown in Colonel Spindell, probably because he figured he would be blamed for everything, and uh, Spindell locked himself in his office. Captain Maxson was the only officer left to handle the deteriorating situation. On October 12th, when Captain Maxson had to step in to prevent one of his subordinates from killing a member of the science team, he ordered interrogations of the science team under his authority as acting commander. Yeah, I don't blame him. At this point, he's probably like, we need to know everything that's going on right now. And he hoped to prevent a full mutiny by offering his troops a semblance of justice. On October 23rd, 2077, the Great War struck. The plans were barely in place when the first missiles left the silos. During the destruction, communication between the vaults ceased. Entire vaults were lost. Those that survived were on their own. Not all vaults succumbed to the machinations of war. On North America's west coast, one group of military vault dwellers emerged almost unscathed. They surveyed the wasteland and squared their shoulders for the task ahead. These dedicated survivors salvaged the technology from the vaults. Technology that was studied, replicated, and fiercely guarded. For they knew that while their power came from numbers, their future lay in scientific knowledge. In time, they formed the Brotherhood of Steel. As Maxon was halfway through prying the story from the head researcher, Leon von Felden, the facility lost contact with the outside world as nuclear weapons started to drop. Maxon ordered his 
soldiers and their families to prepare to vacate the base the next day. On October 25th, Sergeant Plattner volunteered to take atmospheric readings outside the base, reporting no significant amounts of radiation in the atmosphere. Final preparations for the exodus were undertaken. On October 26th, Maxson ordered the remains of the scientists to be buried in the wastes outside the base. A day later, on October 27th, former U.S. service members and their families left the base under the lead of Captain Roger Maxson, heading for the Lost Hills government bunker in the south. So, that's kind of what happens up to bomb drop day and a little bit after. So, the next part of the article talks about what happens in Appalachia, and I'm not going to get into everything, Although we did talk about it quite a bit in our Steel Dawn and Steel Rain retrospectives, go check those out. Um, but we will, let's talk about how they got set up in Appalachia. So, Elizabeth Taggarty was a military leader of Taggarty's Thunder in Appalachia. Mason, sorry, Maxon contacted her via radio communicator and offered to make her organization a part of the Brotherhood. Although Taggarty was hesitant to accept a completely new system of ranks and ideas, believing that the military training and loyalty to commanding officers was enough to carry her through the day, she did not object. She at first treated it as an order like any other. Although Taggarty was skeptical, Maxon outlined his plan to give her and her men a new identity as members of the Brotherhood as way to return meaning to their wives, a and also to combat the overwhelming depression that threatened to take what few survivors made it through the nuclear fire, and to immunize them of any authority of the politicians that might emerge from the vaults, or in the Appalachia's case, the White Spring Congressional Bunker, and to set fire to the world again. Taggarty accepted the new orders without believing them at first, but soon grew into the role. Although the Thunder technically ceased to exist with their adoption of the new ranks, Taggarty always preferred her own men and those who made the cut at Camp Venture. The new Appalachian Brotherhood had difficulties with fighting the Scorch Beasts. Taggarty pleaded with Maxon to grant her team permission to use nuclear weapons against the Scorch Beasts, but was forbidden by him because he found the concept of using nuclear weapons even to help fighting the Scorch Beasts, to be too morally abhorrent after their world was just destroyed by nukes. I can kind of understand that, but at the same time, it's like, Scorch Beasts are pretty tough. In the end, Taggarty and her crew were slaughtered by the monsters, probably because he wouldn't let them use nukes. Maxon did not know this because their communicator had become cut off, and Taggarty died in early 2095. In an attempt to find out what happened to the Appalachian Brotherhood, Maxon sent the Brotherhood First Expeditionary Force, led by Layla Romani and Daniel Shin, and they arrived in West Virginia by 2103. In their last exchange, Maxon implored Taggarty to hold their ground and adhere to their beliefs, reassuring them that they would continue looking for a way to defeat the Scorch Beasts and re-establish contact. Then, there was silence. The mounting losses and severing of supply routes forced them to mothball Camp Venture in July 2093, with Fort Defiance and Thunder Mountain becoming their two remaining strongholds. In a last-ditch effort, Paladin Taggarty launched Operation Touchdown to find the prime Scorch Beast site on January 29, 2095. Accompanied by the most experienced knights they could muster, she and Marino left to track down the lair, leaving behind a trail of transponders for the rest of the Brotherhood to follow. They found the main source of the Scorch Beasts in a mining complex to the southeast. Taggarty, Marino, and the handful of knights that survived this far fought their way into the heart of the cavern. Cornered by a massive scorch beast, they made the ultimate sacrifice, detonating their explosives, martyring themselves, and sending shockwaves through the tunnel system. 
Despite an initial absence, Scorch Beasts began to return. And by June, it became clear that Touchdown ultimately failed. The Brotherhood began to buckle, with Weber going missing on patrol and Esposito being killed in action. The final stand took place on August 18, 2095, as a scorched horde descended upon Fort Defiance. Senior Knight Wilson led a valiant defense, but there were no known survivors. Now, eight years later, the Brotherhood's first expeditionary force is on its way from their headquarters in New California to assess the situation, reinforce, and reestablish contact between the two sides, unknowingly heading into a very different Appalachia. So that's how, and that starts the Steel Dawn and Steel Rain stories. Like I said, I won't really get into those. So that is how the Appalachian uh, branch of the Brotherhood gets started. In other episodes, we're going to be talking about the uh, Brotherhood in the Capital Wasteland. We're going to be talking about the Brotherhood in Texas, uh, the Commonwealth, you know, their war against the NCR. But let's talk about their society a little bit. So the Brotherhood has several distinct ranks that define a member's standing in the Brotherhood social structure, distinguishing each member's position. At the foundation of the hierarchy lies the chain that binds doctrine. It mandates obedience to one's superiors and forbids circumventing ranks when giving orders. Superiors may only give an order to their direct subordinates, but not their subordinate subordinates. So that kind of goes along with the chain of command. So you speak directly to the uh, closest chain and uh, closest rank in the chain. So. You can give an order to your subordinate, but not their subordinate, which I guess makes sense. Although intended to ensure cohesion of command, the doctrine has been generally interpreted as a simple mandate of obedience within the order, with the order of flow requirements ignored, abandoned, and altered in practice. So I guess, yeah, that just tells you that the practice doesn't get followed very much. However, it does provide a technicality that can be invoked to relieve members of rank up to including, up to and including elders. Roger Maxson's goal in inventing a new tradition and mythology of the Brotherhood were twofold. First, they would ensure that the members of the Brotherhood would be stripped of their ties to the pre-war military government, ensuring that any surviving general or politician would not be able to invoke their oaths and use them to unleash nuclear devastation on the world again, as was the case with the Secretary of Agriculture, Thomas Eckert in Appalachia. Second, it would give the survivors an idea to believe in, something that they could dedicate themselves to in finding meaning in their lives after the nuclear war. Inspiration came from the fall of the Western Roman Empire when knights and scribes kept the fire of civilization going on after the empire imploded. <clears throat> Leila Romani believes that the elders of the Brotherhood to be compromised of fear conservationism, remarking that she had tried to steer them away from this ideal. Groups vary in their choice of greetings, some using brother while others use brother and sister. The Brotherhood use, utilizes script for internal trades. Necessary operations, supplies, and other amenities are provided free of charge to working members of the Brotherhood at Lost Hills. Though, in case of new initiatives coming from the outside, they may serve for 10 years before the Brotherhood will provide its most advanced services without charge. Each member receives an allotment of rations to maintain their health, and it may be traded between members. All equipment beyond personal items is issued by the Brotherhood, and issued items, especially weapons, are carefully tracked by a serial number. The Mojave chapter will not sell any equipment to any outsider unless the Elder gives permission. Under Elder Lion's rule, the chapter sorry the brotherhood was known to trade with outsiders but as of 2277 there were many incidents that dissuaded the brotherhood from such activities 
as the 2287 Eastern Division had resumed trade relations in the Capital Wasteland and established new ones in the Commonwealth. While standard-issued gear and weapons are available for Freedom members, more specialized weapons and equipment must be purchased from Quartermasters. The Brotherhood, sorry, the, the beliefs of the Brotherhood were shaped by the experiences of Roger Maxson at Mariposa Military Base in the aftermath of the Great War. At first, the Brotherhood focused on aiding survivors uh, to the best of their ability, acting as an armed force, an armed fighting force, rather than the military it would order it would become. The change came with the realization that the collective knowledge of humanity was in danger of being lost for generations to come. To keep the secrets of the past alive, Maxon decided to dedicate the Brotherhood to the preservation of technology and human knowledge, collecting it in, in order that the Brotherhood might become the catalyst for humanity's rebirth. As the guardians of civilization, the Brotherhood would focus on the big picture, with the direct aid considered a secondary concern. Major changes were introduced under Elder Arthur Maxon in the 2280s. Like the Brotherhood of the 22nd century, the Eastern Division dedicated itself to the advancement of humanity. Beyond taking an active role in wasteland politics, the Brotherhood embraced Elder Lyon's policy of eradicating abominations, combining them with the new approach to control technology. Abominations of nature brought about by mankind's meddling are viewed as a scourge that needs to be destroyed in order for humanity to prosper. The list typically involves super mutants and feral ghouls, although the Brotherhood eliminates raiders and other threats as a matter of course. Controlled technology is seen as a means to an end. As a result, the Brotherhood seeks to understand the nature of technology. The Brotherhood used their knowledge to drive back the atrocities of the wasteland, proclaiming themselves the technological saviors of mankind. They scoured the land in search of more technology, raiding mutant camps, bandit towns, and the broken remains of other vaults. So let's talk a little bit about technology here. The group focuses on secrecy and preserving technology due to the belief that the people of the Wasteland are not responsible enough to use all the technology the Brotherhood has at their disposal. There are known, they are known for trading some of their technology with frontier communications in the states of the New California Republic in exchange for food and other resources, but they keep the more sensitive and advanced technologies to themselves. Destroying technology results in consequences for all members, including elders. Caesar, or Caesar, however you want to say that, refers to them as hoarders, stating that for over 200 years, the group still has a mentality of scavengers. How did mankind abuse technology? Before the Great War, science and technology became more of a burden than a benefit. The atom bomb, bioengineered plagues, and FEV are clear examples of the horrors that technological advancement had wrought. We're here to make sure that never happens again. So you steal technology and keep it for yourselves? You're implying that we do this to benefit ourselves. I can assure you our motivation is quite the opposite. Robert House refers to them as bulging-eyed fanatics that believe all pre-war technology belongs to them. So, like, we can talk about their weapons and their vehicles here. So, military technology is the Brotherhood's main priority, and their efforts over centuries have equipped them with the power array of, of power armor, energy weapons, defense turrets, combat implants, and computers. So, this allows for them to amass sizable stockpiles of power armor, such as the T-60, the T-51, and T-45 variants, although they lack the ability to maneuver, sorry, manufacture new units and energy weapons. Apart from applied te combat technologies, the Brotherhood also has access to advanced medical technologies such as cybernetics, combat implants, and virtual reality training systems that allow them to maintain their combat prowess even under lockdown. And then there's also um, advanced robotics such as RoboBrains, SentryBots, and Liberty Prime. So, as far as their vehicles, Probably the best known are vertebrates, 
The Brotherhood did not have access to an entire fleet of airships, however, in the mid-22nd century, used for exploration of recon. But over the years, the fleet was either destroyed or dismantled for spare parts. By the 23rd century, none of the airships remained, and the one notable vessel crashing in the Midwest on a long-range exploration mission. It was not until the acquisition of Pride 1, which is an a captured enclave vertebrate at the end of the Brotherhood Enclave War that the Brotherhood returned to the skies. So eight years later, the Brotherhood built a new, more advanced airship at the Adams Air Force Base, which is called the Pridwin. And anybody who's played Fallout 4 should know about the Pridwin. But with uh, getting the information from the enclave's vertebrates, um, I'm sure they were able to build new ones. By the 20, by 2287, the size of this new air force was so significant that the Brotherhood created an entirely new castle uh, known as Lancers in order to pilot them. Alright, so last thing we're going to discuss here in this episode is foreign relations. <clears throat> so this is how they deal with people outside of the Brotherhood. By 2281, the Brotherhood fought against the NCR in the Brotherhood War. One of the campaigns of the war played out in the Mojave Wasteland, where during the Operation Sunburst, more than half of the chapter perished, forcing Elder McNamara to retreat to a nearby bunker and declare lockdown. All members left outside the bunker are cut loose if this protocol is enacted. If the bunker is invaded, the group will initiate a self-destruct. In four out of six instances of successful invasion by NCR forces, this was carried out. By 2287, the Brotherhood has radicalized its policies toward mutants, with standing orders to exterminate any post-war abominations. In practice, the Brotherhood usually does not shoot on sight unless targets are confirmed as hostile even if they are sent in a critical location. For most of its existence, the Brotherhood did not recruit outsiders as a general rule. When it did, they required the recruits to be very young so that the proper relationship with technology could be cultivated. Adults have an approach that the Brotherhood considers perverted. However, exceptional individuals may be considered a joint Brotherhood. As Elder Arthur Maxson became the leader of the Brotherhood's Eastern Branch, he retained Elder Owen Lyons' practice of recruiting Wastelanders, sponsored by existing Brotherhood members, and expanded it. As it was under Lyons, the sponsor would travel within the charges and teach them the ideals of the Brotherhood and train them in combat. To this end, active members can promote recruits to initiate rank, but the rank and subsequent promotions have been confirmed by Elder Maxson at the earliest possible opportunity. However, while the member can retract their sponsorship, once the rank is confirmed by Elder, the only, only the Elder can dismiss the sponsored party from the organization. So that is all I'm going to get into as far as the Brotherhood of Steel goes in this episode. Um, like I said, in subsequent episodes, I'm sure we're going to discuss different chapters of the Brotherhood. Uh, because they each kind of have their own thing going and each one, I, I kind of treat each uh, branch of the Brotherhood of Steel differently based on the game. Um, some games I really like them, some games I really hate them. Just kind of depends on what game it is. So I know also at some point we're going to be discussing uh, Fallout New Vegas at length, which is great because... Right now, I am playing a lot of Fallout New Vegas. Um, I'm part of the Fallout Feeds Roundtable this season, and we are playing the Fallout New Vegas main quest line. Um, it's great to have a refresher on that, and there's actually some things in the game I haven't done as far as DLC, so I'm really looking forward to discussing that in a later episode. So I am going to turn this over to Kelsey and I will see you guys in the wasteland. Thanks so much to Eric for the 
lore dive there on the origins of the Brotherhood of Steel. Uh, I hope you learnt something. I know that I definitely did, uh, particularly the stuff about um, so the the pre Appalachia stuff. It's weird, despite that being some of the most fresh kind of Brotherhood of Steel lore in my mind. It's amazing sometimes how much does kind of wash over you, and it was nice to get a refresher on that uh, because obviously Fallout seventy six is like the main thing that people play. Uh, in Fallout right now. Well, it's certainly that I've been playing for a long time. I know I mentioned that I haven't been playing it loads recently, but certainly in the last couple of years, it's been my main thing. And then with all the DLC and stuff, it was just nice to get a, a bit of a refresher on, on, on how they ended up getting to Appalachia. But that's it for this episode. We're going to wrap it up now. I just want to send another thank you to everybody for listening uh, listens continue to roll in for the podcast. We've now passed the 7,000 listens mark. It's a bit higher than that, actually, but yeah, it's just it's another milestone for us, and I know I speak for, for Eric when I say that we're both very grateful that people continue to tune in. Um, do come and get involved with us on social media if you'd like to do a, a journal reading or a tape reading. Uh, just come and follow us at, at TFTWpod on Twitter, or we're at Tapes from the Wastes on Instagram. And yeah, just just drop us a message. Uh, we'd love for people to get involved. We'll be back again soon with another episode. Um, it will... I think I mentioned before, we're looking at doing some New Vegas stuff. That's probably not going to be the next next episode, so it will be something else in the lore of Fallout. But Eric is currently, as he mentioned, doing a roundtable for New Vegas with the Fallout feed, so go check out them as well. Uh, a special thank you to The Hive for continuing to promote and support this podcast. Uh, we love the guys over there. Um, if you're looking for uh, a Discord server where there's lots of other content creators and gamers and game nights and servers and things like that, uh, please do check it out. Um, we have a link in the podcast description. Until next time, though, thanks again, everybody, for listening. I look forward to the next episode, and stay safe out there, Wanderers. We had a lot thrown at us back there. Our op could have ended in disaster, but you kept your cool and handled it like a soldier. There's no doubt in my mind that you've got what it takes. The way I see it, you've got a choice. You could spend the rest of your life wandering from place to place, trading an extra hand for a meager reward. Or you could join the Brotherhood of Steel and make your mark on the world. So, what do you say? <laughs>